With the sudden departure of amazing Spider-Man scribe Marv Wolfman, Marvel's editorial department was sent scrambling for his replacement. Future Venom co-creator David Michelinie stepped in to fill the gap, but Marvel instead looked toward their editorial team for a solution. The man they landed on was the amazing Spider-Man editor Denny O'Neill, who had started his career for Marvel back in the 1960s before leaving for the distinguished competition DC Comics. It was there that he became a legend, penning historic runs on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Batman. It seemed like a sure bet that O'Neill would be the right guy to carry the torch in Marv Wolfman's absence. Denny's run on Amazing Spider-Man would last only a short 14 issues and would introduce several notable characters that would continue to appear in Spider-Man comics to this day. And yet, there are next to like no collections of these comics in print, and critics and historians alike point to this run on the comic as probably one of the worst and most ill-fitting eras in Amazing Spider-Man history. So today on The Amazing Spider-Talk, we will discover why Denny O'Neill's run of Amazing Spider-Man comics truly are... Spidey's Lost Years. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandoned The Amazing Spider Talk. The Amazing. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. They, they probably count in this instance, Dan, if we're talking about this <laughs> run, right? <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count, even if they are better than the main series, based on the creator. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome back to this new season of Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put up a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, in this season of all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man's adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, Spider-Man got several new TV shows, and the creative voices at Marvel were constantly changing. Today, Mark and I will be taking a look at one of the most underread, obscure, and strange, and maligned runs in Amazing Spider-Man history. But one that we lovingly poke fun of, and that's Denny O'Neill's one-of-a-kind Amazing Spider-Man. That's right, Dan. Denny O'Neill, a DC comic superstar, the only man alive with less hair than you. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mark. If you're watching this live, you know that Mark's talking about Denny O'Neill right here for you guys because we're staring at the mighty mug of O'Neill himself. And that's because we're also streaming our video live. So every other Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, tune in on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider Talk Live. Plus, Mark and I are going to stick around after the show to interact with the audience and answer questions live. Just go to Amazing Spider Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on notifications to be reminded when we go live. Okay, Dan, I think it's time that we, we get into this thing. Denny O'Neill's run on the comics. This is this is an interesting one for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We've kind of jokingly back and forth talked about Danny O'Neill's run for a long time. We had several characters on the show that we pull from Danny O'Neill's run. It's like kind of a favorite of ours in like a mocking kind of way, which is not really the tone of our show. But, you know, here it is. We can finally kind of get all of these phantoms out. It's a treasure trove of very obscure, very hyper-accentuated characters, I would say, which is probably part of the reason why we also kind of make fun of this run a bit, because, you know, what other run of Amazing Spider-Man has such characters that we find in this run? <laughs> and if 
you know, you're our historian guy. You always get us started a little bit here with all these kind of like lessons about who this guy is. So tell us, who is this Denny O'Neill and, and how did he kind of get his start in comics? Who is this guy, right? No, I, you know, it's so funny. Like you would think like Denny O'Neill, he, this, this guy is a total legend. Like, and, 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 you know, I know we say we call a lot of people legends on this show and a lot of the legends that we call legends are like, don't call me a legend. But Denny O'Neill really is a legend like this guy. He, you know, he he's better. He's better known for what he did for D.C., although he did some pretty cool stuff for Marvel, too, later on after he started at Marvel and then jumped over to D.C. in the 70s. I mean, his big runs were Batman and then the he put Green Lantern and Green Arrow together in one book. Uh, and then also kind of later he, he boomeranged back to D.C. and. And he started uh, writing The Question after that that joined up with, with DC after Crisis of the Infinite Earths, which was, of course, penned by the the people from our last episode, Marv Wolfman. But the, the, kind of the funny thing with Denny was he actually got into comics almost like as a like as a joke. And he was asked by uh, Roy Thomas to take the, the Marvel writing test because, you know, Stanley had started kind of backing uh, down off of uh, his duties of basically writing every single Marvel book. And he was getting Roy uh, into it as well. And Roy was friends with Denny and was like, oh, you should do this. And Denny was like, OK, I'll do it as a joke, not thinking it would lead to somewhere. But, you know, he he, he must have passed the test or they were just desperate. So uh, he was immediately thrown into some of the I don't want to call them lesser books, but these weren't like the total flagship books. I mean, one was Doctor Strange, although this was like post Ditko Doctor Strange. So it wasn't quite the the phenomenon that it was initially. But then also he was doing like Millie the Model and Rawhide Kid. Yeah, wasn't the test that he wrote for like a Fantastic Four book? I mean, that's kind of how they did it back in the day. They gave you a page of like six panels that with no dialogue and you just kind of added dialogue to it to see what you could make it. That sounds about right. I mean, it, w- w- have you ever seen the the artist test too? Because what was that? That was because that 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 recruited a fair amount of talent too back in the day, didn't it? Or yeah, I'm I'm not so sure of the details on that. I don't know if it's one of those like at home kits where you had to draw the pipe or whatever it was, or a kitten. Uh, I'm sure it's probably more involved than that. You know, like uh, famous Mark Bagley was the winner of like you know one of those art test competitions, and that's how he got his start. But I believe for Denny O'Neill, it was a Fantastic Four page that he worked on. That sounds about right, Dan. But funny enough, as he was at Marvel, he did a fill-in issue of X-Men, X-Men issue number 65. And this was actually his first collaboration with artist Neil Adams, who he would then go on to work with at DC and basically do some of the most famous comics in in the Bronze Age during that era. So that's that's a cool little thing that the two of them hooked up on that. And then when the gigs ran dry at Marvel, he actually—I I thought this was a funny factoid. He left for uh, Charlton Comics under the pen name Sergius O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> Rolls right off the tongue. I mean, that's a that's a pen name for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so he like went back to DC in 1968, and he made a bunch of really like controversial choices there. Like he depowered Wonder Woman, which I don't think was like as big of a hit as of his as his other stuff well he eventually like settled in on justice league but like what was his biggest claim to fame mark well like so you know out of justice league he started writing uh green lantern and green arrow and and that's really where the, where he started making a name for himself cuz you know one of the big things about this book it was probably you know we we comics had always kind of been commenting on social issues i mean we've we've talked about it the last couple of seasons on Amazing Spider-Man uh, with Amazing Spider-Man, like the, the no drug code or the no comic code, excuse me, issues with Harry Osborn on drugs. But like his Green Arrow, Green Lantern series was like really like hammering these issues of, of drug use and poverty and classism and, and progressive politics. And of course, this is like kind of like mid 70s, you know, Richard Nixon in the White House era of of political consciousness. And then, you know, kind of the what's considered like the 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 jewel of that run was this storyline Snowbirds Don't Fly, which uh, shows the Green Arrows ward Speedy getting addicted to heroin. And it's, you know, basically one of the most famous comics of all time. I mean, like it's it's, you know, very shocking to see, you know, like these 
you know, talk about like a loss of innocence. I mean, you know, we have obviously the death of Gwen Stacy, but this is this comic is probably considered right behind it in terms of like major innocence shattering events in comic book history. And of course, it's it's pretty explicit. You know, the cover shows like full on, you know, he's got the needle and the spoon and yeah, they're flat out calling him a junkie. I mean, it's a really striking image. It was very powerful. And of course, it's also worth noting that the only I shouldn't say the only way they got to do this, but, you know, this the road was paved for this by those those no comic code issues that we talked about in season two, the the Stanley Ramita issues. So, I mean, it's it's kind of cool that, you know, Spider-Man kind of paved the way for for books like this to happen, because, you know, it was after the comic code, comic authority lacks their restrictions on on drug use and comics that a, a book like this could happen. And, and it, it reflects a, a reality for certain. I mean, you know, this kind of drug abuse that was prevalent. I mean, you know, the, the drugs that were used in Spider-Man, it was kind of like these these ambiguous drugs right <laughs> like, yeah like like yeah pills. yeah they're pills and <laughs> harry's flying but we don't know but i mean yeah. this is you know obviously takes it to the next level i mean very explicit and kind of coming on the heels of green green lantern green arrow was o'neill would join forces again with neil adams to do batman and i mean you know who who hasn't made a name for themselves on Batman, right? I mean, it's but to Denny O'Neill's credit, like this was a really considered a, defi- a defining run of Batman because this was more or less the first run on Batman post Batman sixty six to really kind of get dark and gritty with the ca- character again. I mean, you know, they had been kind of treating Batman as more of, of a camp figure for a while, and this was best emblemized by uh, probably. O'Neill's most famous story on Batman and maybe one of the most famous Batman stories ever, which is Joker's five ways revenge, which was so Joker had basically been put on ice in comics for a number of years. So this was kind of his reintroduction. And and they basically brought him back as this chaotic sociopath. He's he's like gunning down his his former allies in, in, in crime. And he's like, you know, like carving the smile onto their faces after he kills them off. And Batman's trying to to solve the crime and and. This is basically like the carbon copy depiction of Joker going, you know, like you look at like Heath Ledger's Joker or, or you know, like this. This is this is that Joker. Obviously, what Frank Miller would later do with the Joker as well. I mean, like this is this is that Joker. And it's also worth noting for for people who are a fan of the Nolan Batman films that O'Neill created uh, Raja Ghul and Talia Ghul on this run as well, which is, you know, obviously considered very, you know, very significant character creations in comics. What about how did he get back to Marvel? You know, there was obviously a lot of editorial shakeup and we we keep we referred to it last episode and we're going to be referring it to a lot in the coming episodes over the course of the season. In fact, might be dedicating an entire episode to that. So, you know, with Marv Wolfman and George Perez and others leaving, Marvel basically kind of poached O'Neill back to Marvel. And and, you know, I guess the lure of that was giving him. Amazing Spider-Man, which is kind of funny because it's probably the least significant work he did at Marvel. (laughs) Because like after he did this very short run on Spider-Man, he would go on to do Iron Man for a few years. And this was, I believe, post-David Michelinie Iron Man, but also considered quite significant in the fact that it it brought back Tony Stark's alcoholism. Uh, It introduced the uh, character Obadiah Stane, who, of course, for... MCU fans. He was the very first MCU villain. So anyone who's ever had a problem with MCU villains, <laughs> look no further than Obadiah Stane and Denny O'Neill's creation. And also, you know, in terms of people who like, who are fans of comic book runs where the hero is replaced by another character for a period of times, so Denny O'Neill did that with Iron Man and made Rhodey uh, Rhodes Iron Man for a good chunk of issues. And then again, not really... Related to Marvel superheroes per se, but, you know, obviously with all the toy books with Marvel in the 80s, Denny did some work on Transformers for a while. And I saw this note on the Internet, so I guess take this with grains of salt. I I tried to verify this the best I can, but apparently Denny O'Neill is credited with naming Optimus Prime. Which, like, sounds like the villain, Uh, always I've always thought Optimus Prime villain Megatron sounds like the hero. I don't know if we can blame Megatron on him, but that's always been my take. Well, very cool, Mark. Thanks for that background on Denny O'Neill there. Let's talk about our favorite thing. That's our spider slack. 
Yeah, the spider slack, Dan. Hundreds of listeners like you, and even I on occasion, hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the slack. The amazing spider slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. It's basically replaced the conversations that I would have in my comic shop during the coronavirus. So instead of screaming in a comic shop, I scream on the Slack. No, we're very friendly there. Uh, just so, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi and let us know what you thought of this episode. You know, that's the best place to do it. All right, so back to it, Mark. Let's talk about some of the highlights of the Denny O'Neill run. What makes this run special so to speak you know uh, t- t- where did this run start mark uh well i mean i'm looking at i mean talk about special i mean you got who is this character i you know, fun fact first time i ever got this issue which is amazing spider-man number 207 the first issue of denny o'neill's run i saw that the, the the purple and the green on the cover and i was like is this a green goblin story no <laughs> <laughs> it's the evil magician mesmero <laughs> What? Of course, <laughs> his grand scheme of getting Spider-Man to juggle bowling pins on a high wire. Right. I mean, like, who wouldn't expect to see that in a Spider-Man story? <laughs> he was just itching to tell Spider-Man stories with Mesmero. That was the the like blow up first issue. And I just like how like the the issue basically ends with with Spider-Man being like, wait, why? Let me just throw these high into the air and get the hell out of here. Like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it it ran from Amazing Spider-Man 207, his run to 221, although he skipped issue 220 and he did co-write 223 with, you know, JMD, our our former guest JMD. But like Mark was saying in the intro, his two, like, I think, best issues he did in the annuals. Mark, which ones were those? I'm going to make you say it. <laughs> the annuals that count. Slide A. No, this is the he did uh, Amazing Spider-Man annuals number 14 and 15 with up and coming artist Frank Miller. It's also worth noting here, Dan, just kind of as a sidebar that, you know, in, in interviews with Danny O'Neill, he talked about when he joined Marvel, he really didn't work Marvel style a whole bunch, which for those who are uninitiated, Marvel style is this idea of kind of collaborating very intently with your artists. You know, you you, you, you kind of give them very loose plots and, and let the artist kind of set the pacing a little bit. And then you kind of go back and forth a little bit, whereas, you know, full script is kind of something more so with DC Comics. However, so so Denny mostly worked full script. However, the one exception were those two annuals with Frank Miller in with Amazing Spider-Man. And I think maybe that might be a reason why they feel a little more at home in, in the Spider-Man canon, don't you think? Yeah, 100%. We'll talk about this when we give our feedback to the Denny O'Neill run, but so many of his stories, the pacing is very strange. And you know, you could maybe chalk that up to him. I mean, there seems to be a pattern. You know, maybe it was the artist too, not like not being used to working full script and, you know, this kind of more open, freeing Marvel style allowed them to kind of find an equilibrium. But, I, you know, it seems obvious to me that Frank Miller is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in those annuals. It is worth noting that O'Neill had been editing Marvel Team Up and Spectacular Spider-Man while Marv Wolfman was penning Amazing Spider-Man. So... But he made the transition and, and, you know, like this again, this was, I think, considered like the jewel of the Marvel series at this point to be working on it. I mean, well, Wolfman said it, too, that, you know, it was either Spider-Man or Fantastic Four. Those were the books you wanted if you were working at Marvel at this time. And, and, and Danny did this. So what, it, what it, I mean, what are your impressions of some of these books here? <laughs> I mean, Mark, just to get it out of the way, I think this is one of the weakest runs of Amazing Spider-Man. It, it, it does like almost everything opposite of how like we I think everybody who had read Amazing Spider-Man up to this point was used to it. We talked last episode about character versus plot. These were so plot heavy, but not even in a way that picked up the baton from Wolfman's run, like you get the sense that as soon as Denny got a hold of this book, he just dropped all the threads that Wolfman had going. And maybe that was out of respect because Wolfman just up and left to go to DC kind of abruptly. So maybe he felt like either he didn't know where Wolfman was going with them or he wanted to leave those stories alone. But like it's full on breaks for the first couple issues of, of this run where he just course corrects hard 
into kind of doing new things. And it's interesting because for those first three issues, because of Wolfman's hasty departure, O'Neill kind of took over the editorial and writing duties at the same time. So like no one was there to stop him. You know, he, he, he had the full control over these books and uh, he was going to take it where he wanted to. Parallel to what Wolfman was doing. I mean, we talked about Wolfman, the amount of like plotting and, and, and yet there was a tightness to all these different threads going on. And I feel like with these O'Neill books, it just feels like a bunch of like independent stories that, you know, are, are just kind of isolated from each other. There's very few common threads throughout. I mean, there are a couple. I don't want to make it sound like there are none, but like, you know, there's very few like ongoing storyline threads that get addressed over the span of these these 14 issues. And then, you know, beyond and and, and are there even any multi-part arcs? I mean, there's like one or two, I think, out of this whole run that, you know, go on beyond one issue. And that that to me is kind of amazing. I mean, think about that today. Could you imagine like if Nick Spencer's run was just a bunch of like what and duns? <laughs> I mean, there are like continuing threads and we're going to talk about a few of them in a, in a minute, but they are so insubstantial when compared to even just Marv Wolfman's run. Like they're just random characters that pop up and disappear here and there. I mean, I think to me, at least just getting it out of the way to me, it seems like O'Neill was the kind of guy they threw in because they had to find somebody. He didn't have time to plan stuff out and he kind of went with his own kind of unique take on this, which I would consider kind of like in the Marvel team up style. It just doesn't seem like amazing Spider-Man. It seems like a B title. Yeah. And what's funny, Dan is so we're, we're, we're kind of speculating motivations and and intent here and i think part of the reason why we're speculating is because you know in addition to these comics not really being collected anywhere like you know it's like next to impossible to find denny o'neill content talking about his run on spider-man i mean i'm sure he's talked about it over the years but like the Tom DeFalco book, for example, of like all these creators on Spider-Man from, you know, DeFalco is everybody but O'Neill in that book that, you know, had written on it on, you know, written about the character for the most part. There's there's not much to be found. I mean, you know, maybe maybe there's like a throwaway sentence in a in a back issue somewhere or alter ego or one of those one of those magazines. If someone knows where the definitive Denny O'Neill talks Spider-Man interview is, let me know, because I, you know, like a lot of this is just like, well, we think this is what was going on because this is not a lot of research and, and, and ink space dedicated to what this run was about and how and, and what O'Neill was going for here. And really, it's only like 14 issues, which is not like uh, like anyone's opus. I mean, especially nowadays where we in like a little un- under two years, we've got Nick Spencer near doing nearly 50 issues. It's a very different world. So we, when we say run, you know, 14 issues is like ha- uh, hardly a run, I think. I mean, maybe a little over a year in content, I guess, plus the annuals. So like 16. Look at me not counting the annuals there. Oh, I'm betraying myself. <laughs> yeah. But like if you even look at like the brand new day era now, granted, this is the Internet era. But I'm like, you know, like you have writers and artists who worked on Spider-Man for maybe a half dozen issues total. But like there felt you felt like there was more input there in terms of what we got here in terms of like what O'Neill was up to. Like you just, it's, it's, it kind of, it's shocking to me. Like, you know, there's someone of that history, you know, of that let, you know, of that status, like basically not having anything on the record about working on one of the most famous characters in comics. is just kind of mystifying for me, but nevertheless, like there were some things that came out of his run that have had some lasting power or staying power rather in the pages of amazing Spider-Man, you know, whether he created them or not, like a lot of these kind of scenarios were kind of like popularized in his run. And I would say the first one is popular reoccurring character on our show. None other than Deb Whitman, the the, cla- the Debbie Downer herself. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the original Debbie Downer for sure. Although it's, it's worth noting that Deb actually started appearing in Marv Wolfman's run, correct? I mean, we talked about this last time, didn't we? Yeah, she had like a very minor, like couple panel appearance. But in my mind, it's really Bill Mantlo who established the Deb Whitman scenario, which is essentially Deb and Peter go out and he abandons her in a brutal fashion and she beats herself up. And this repeats over and over and over again with very little change to that formula. And, you know, Bill Mantlo does that in an issue of Spectacular 
And, you know, that kind of set up this ongoing, I guess, bit. I don't know how else you would describe it. It's mean-spirited, you know, to say the least, but an interesting, I guess, example of how Peter can dip out on MJ and MJ is, you know, level-headed and strong enough to withstand it. But you get someone with some self-confidence issues and they can just like totally crack under the supposed pressure, if you will. You know, talking, uh, you know, comics and context and the times and what like, I mean, like, I don't think like a bit, if you will, like this could be pulled off without causing major controversy in today's comics for sure. Well, you know, we don't have comics today, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the modern comics. I mean, yeah, I mean, like it's, it's, it's kind of downright cruel and it's not like they, it's not like they refer to Deb as being unattractive or anything like that. Like Peter kind of justifies it over and over by saying, Oh, I kind of like her, you know, like, or she seems, she seems all right. You know, she seems sweet, but like, he's clearly not, romantically interested in her and let until basically she starts seeing another guy and then <laughs> then he kind of gets jealous but even then he's like well she made her choice but even when he's kind of dating her he's actively hitting on his, that like the the next door neighbor of his that is like this supermodel but turns out to be an atlantean villain you know like that classic trope yeah <laughs> but like and then the minute that she's no longer an option he's like well i guess i should go sweeten things up with deb but it's clear that his his wandering eye the whole time and this is classic like the grass is always greener scenario although in deb's case it's probably true because i don't really ever get a sense of like why these two characters connected in the first place. Like we never spend time with them doing any kind of like soul searching or any kind of like real connective material. It's mostly just him dipping out on her and repeat that over and over and over again. It's pretty bizarre. And like I said, like you said, it's mean spirited and there is like that one issue where like he kind of kisses her and you know, she gets like really into it. And then Peter is like immediately like, you know, inner monologuing, like, what did I do? <laughs> like, it's like, wow, like, like, this is, this is unlikable Peter at his, and it's not like unlikable, like, I'm going to show them unlikable. Like, this is just like, wow, you're, you're a really scummy human being, Peter Parker. Like, what is that? <laughs> you feel bad for Deb because it's clear that there's something, she's like got a mental illness. And, and, and that goes to an extreme where like, eventually, like, Peter is like uh, gaslighting her. And in order to get her to like forget his secret identity and stuff, like she goes to a shrink. There's a great like crazy looking cover with her on it where like all the Spider-Men are like peeling her face apart in an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man because she's starting to like lose her mind over the Peter Spider-Man thing. And it's just like gross. Like I want to I want to say she's an interesting like romantic interest for Peter, but it, it just always feels bad. Yeah. And she was abused by her ex-husband. It's like a whole thing. So, yeah, she eventually starts dating Biff Rifkin, who, you know, I guess we would see every now and again, but it's not really been like a major, you know, character that returns. But like with a name like Biff, I mean, you know, like it's going to send some alarms up for Peter. Yeah, I mean. Sounds like we should like get him to be in like a trilogy of movies about going back to the future, right? He's in Death of a Salesman, no, no. whichever one you you want to go with. Okay, there you go. Uh, probably, probably, probably your your version. So enough about Deb, because who cares, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, we're dipping out on we're dipping out on Deb just like Peter. It's just time to cut cut her off. But Peter Peter does reunite with somebody on this run, which I guess is notable, right? Yeah, he eventually kind of reconnects with Jonah, who was kind of forced out of the Daily Bugle and because he kind of goes insane. And Denny O'Neill quickly wraps that up and brings Jonah back. There's this kind of interesting thing where Jonas Harrow is blasting some like mental rays at the Bugle office to get revenge on the Bugle. So like Robbie Robertson steps in to, to replace Jonah and then he starts going crazy and at first you get this idea that like oh the position of editor of the Daily Bugle just makes everyone in that seat go mad but there is actually a reason behind it and so once Jonah's back he rehires Peter for some work and Peter leaves the globe and returns to the Bugle for some fun times I guess yeah now what was going on with the globe at this time because there is a there is another kind of minor character who would be recurring throughout the 80s that gets introduced during this run 
Yeah, so like this run starts off with Peter at the Globe, and the Globe gets this new circulation manager named Rupert Dockery, who thinks that the paper's over-concerned with printing facts. And Dockery is actually a character from the Spider-Woman series and used to be her foil in Los Angeles. So he kind of like flies out to New York. And it was kind of a way for them to start integrating those two series together. And Dockery introduces this new character named Lance Bannon to work alongside Peter as a photographer. And he would kind of become a bit of a foil to Peter in and out of the books over the years. Yeah, a foil. And I also, I mean, you know, not to jump ahead in the seasons here a bit, but I also felt like Lance was teased very briefly as a possible hobgoblin uh, red herring for a, a hot moment, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's even teased. It's like they really want you wanted you to think that for a little while there. And it made sense, right? Like he was like, it's kind of a neat idea to have someone at the bugle also be, you know, thwarting Peter. And I guess we would probably ultimately see that happen when we got, you know, Phil Urich as the, the green goblin in the Dan slot run or rather hobgoblin. What, what, what were some other great moves from the great Rupert Dockery? <laughs> Dockery hires a bunch of thugs to kidnap their publisher, KJ Clayton, who has been teased all through like the Marv Wolfman run and in the pages of spectacular. And it turns out the person he captures is not actually her. It's an impersonator named Belinda. This is like the hobgoblin thing where it's the twins that aren't twins kind of thing. Yeah. Spider-Man busts it up and gets Dockery to confess. And it just wraps up the story that Marv Wolfman had been seeding for like 10 issues in like a single issue. And it's super lame and it's over and it's just over. And there you go. That's the Daily Globe. It's like the Hobgoblin, but nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, let me preface this by saying here's a character that was created during this run that is certainly significant. Can't argue that. It has been uh, portrayed and depicted in a number of different Spider-Man media. Never really resonated with me, but we won't argue about that per se. But that's Madam Web. And, I mean, what, what do you, would you say this is probably the biggest contribution to spider lore here? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, she appears in like two issues here, one that's kind of solely focused on her and one that's actually, Mark, you were tweeting about this uh, based around the New York Marathon, where she kind of is somehow calling Spider-Man on various phones around New York to like tell him about this killer that's going to attack, you know, someone in the marathon, although it turns out to not be someone in the marathon, but the mayor mayoral candidate. I would say this is probably his biggest contribution. I don't know how much of a splash he gave at the time, but she's grown. I mean, I think mostly the 90s cartoon is what elevated her into kind of canonical status truly in the world of Spider-Man. Right. I mean, and it's certainly interesting that this character came forward and like kind of almost instantly knows Peter's secret and, you know, has this like psychic connection. It's kind of cool. Frankly, I've always found like the design to be kind of lame. It's just basically like it looks like Aunt May with a visor. I always felt like and a, and a big red dress. <laughs> but I mean, that aside, it's it's a it's a cool concept. And it kind of, I you know, obviously seeds like these larger, you know, anybody, anytime anybody talks about the web of life, woo, you know, <laughs> secret scrolls, you know, but uh, if you're if you're into that kind of stuff, Madam Web is for you for sure. And she's in one of your favorite comics of, of all of Spider-Man. We, we, there's so many, Dan. Are we talking about Spider-Verse? Uh, nothing, nothing can stop the juggernaut. That's true. That's true. That's and you know, but she's just basically like a, a damsel in distress in that in that storyline. So, yeah. Interesting to note, you know, from the 90s show, she was voiced by Stan Lee's wife. So that's kind of fun. So, yeah. So that's Madam Web. You know, I would say that's notable enough to, to come out of this, but um, not as noticeable as our next person that Denny O'Neill created, at least in terms of our show. We've never had a Madam Web voice on the show. Although I feel like my wife probably knows her, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, next up is none other than Lonesome Pincus, our favorite, Mark. I think of anything in this run, this is our favorite thing I, I from mean, this run. I mean, favorite is kind of relative here, Dan. But <laughs> but certainly, certainly my favorite thing to routinely make fun of. Lonesome Pincus, the clueless late night singer next door to Peter. This was kind of like... You know, talk about mysteries. You know, Spider-Man is a series always filled with these kind of long-running mysteries. And I guess Denny O'Neill's mystery was 
who is the neighbor in Peter's apartment singing really obnoxious country songs late at night? Like so much so that Peter actually punches a hole in the wall out of frustration in one scene. And what is the big reveal? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the mystery is he seems to think there's this guy in the lobby, this tall, handsome country singer looking guy who he thinks is the country singer. And it, you always see this like short little guy standing near him who he is unassuming about. And of course it's not the country singer guy. It's like lonesome pinkus or lonesome pinky. He goes by like a variety of names throughout all of it. Peter kind of destroys his apartment wall and discovers him. And then Peter's apartment is like flat out destroyed again in a fire which we'll talk about a little bit later and he gets moved to the plaza hotel and wouldn't you know it they put him in the room right next to pincus again and he gets to hear him sing so so yeah but the pincus it's weird because he seemed to be really valuable not just to us but to denny o'neill himself because his final issue is all about lonesome pincus can you tell us about what goes on in that issue there's a weird level of humor and irony to this like so obviously this is uh the ramrod issue if memory serves and ramrod has poisoned would you say a, a group of 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 people at a bar uh, where lonesome is performing and you know in, in a trope that Denny basically repeats over and over again during this run. You know, Spider-Man has X amount of time to get this, you know, get a solution or, you know, somebody dies or everybody dies. In this case, it's everyone who ingested this, this, you know, a drink at this bar that, you know, it's basically put them all into this trance that only lonesome singing can kind of keep them calm for. And, and so Lonesome unknowingly is basically playing the role of hero. He has to keep singing. His voice is getting hoarser and hoarser as the show goes on. And, and finally, in the nick of time, Spidey gets the, gets the antidote and, and, and Lonesome's voice finally gives out. And, and, you know, he saves the day and he kind of walks off into the, the moonlight a la the last paddle of Amazing Fantasy number 15. And I'm just like sitting there rereading this comic being like, what in the actual what is this? <laughs> it's a fun issue, although the ramrod stuff seems so like disconnected from it. Like the only reason this whole scenario is happening is because the villain got turned down for an audition at the country bar and decides to basically poison everyone at the bar. And because Peter doesn't drink alcohol, right? He's not poisoned. I, I've always kind of, and this might be me like meta textualizing this, but I've always kind of read Pincus as the O'Neill stand in character, which is a weird thing to say, but like it, it's as if like he was doing what he wanted to do and nobody liked it. Right. Like lonesome. It has been singing country music and no one likes it, even though that's his passion. And the same was true of O'Neill on this run is like he was kind of singing his own tune and it just didn't really go down well. But only when he changes to do more like crowd pleasing stuff is he kind of applauded. And you can see that, I think, in his like annuals. And I think even in this issue with Lonesome, I think it's one of the better issues of the run, if you will. I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> for me, this is kind of like a, a, his swan song saying like, look, this wasn't a good fit. And maybe I'll try something else that people will like actually like play the hits, you know, like a go to do Iron Man or whatever, somewhere that's a better fit for Denny O'Neill. And anyway, that's my kind of meta textual take on uh, lonesome Pincus, but you know it's rude to talk about someone when they're in the room mark you know we actually have lonesome Pincus with us here today why don't you let him at the mic there mark okay hold on let me let me go get him whoa hey lonesome you're here it's great to have you on the show uh, howdy dan how, how you doing I'm doing just fine. You know, Lonesome, not everybody appreciates you, but here on Amazing Spider Talk, we love you to death. And that's because you're such a musical talent. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you have always appreciated me. You let me you let me try out for the 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 B-book reviews. I almost won too, but you know, I lost to a Nazi reanimated skeleton made entirely out of bees, like you do. But that tends to happen in this country, just losing to Nazis. Well, I mean, I guess, you know. It's where we're at. So uh, <laughs> could I could I maybe sing you another song for this to to, to oh. mark this fantastic episode? 
I would love that. Lonesome, I'm just going to let you take it away. Danny O'Neill, Danny O'Neill, Danny O'Neill created me. Just a short-statured singing cowboy in a Spidey comic book. You might think that Hydro Man was Danny O'Neill's greatest gift. But when you think of Spidey comics, you always think of Lonesome Pete. Bravo, encore, encore. You just like warmed my heart up. So thank you so much, Lonesome, for coming on the show. You're quite welcome. All right, bring Mark back. I think one song is enough for everybody. Oh, Mark, welcome back. That was utterly amazing. I mean... Yeah, he's the best. uh, So... So speaking of which, Lonesome referred to him. We we have a Hydro Man, right? Oh yeah, another great creation of Denny and <laughs> I mean, you know, if you like Sandman, why don't you just have a water version of him? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> what happens when water and sand get mixed together, Mark? It becomes a special episode of Amazing Spider Talk from many years ago. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, we did talk about that issue. Yes. We're going to talk a bit more about Hydra Man in our next episode where we talk about all the villains. But, you know, probably the one villain from this run that really continued on in any way, because probably the only villain that like one of the few villains he actually created during this run. All the other villains were kind of borrowed from other places. Right. And 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 such great villains that he chose to borrow, too. But it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, he's working on a ship and he's kind of minding his own business and Spider-Man's clumsiness is actually what gets him like he's i mean it's kind of grotesque what happens to hydro man here i mean it's like he gets like sucked into this like uh what is it like a nuclear turbine or something like that i mean it's 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 been like a propeller blade he just gets chopped to pieces but like thankfully he was turned into like water but like it's all spider-man's fault like we don't even really know like maury before this happens he's just like an innocent bystander that spider-man like screws up he's like he's incidentally a bad guy yeah and it's not like you know he's like well i'm i'm uh i'm made of, i got these powers now so let me go like rob some stuff he's just kind of like what the hell happened to me you know like i i kind of you, you almost kind of sympathize with him yeah absolutely and then you know his whole life is just spent traveling from toilet to bucket to who knows what he is a man of mysteries and mysterious contents what happens if you drink him i want to know Ooh. <laughs> Maybe I don't want to know. Talk talk about stopping the spread, Dan. That doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> no. They probably the other like major like villain slash like partner that like shows up in this run more than pretty much anyone else is Namor, who like Spidey like fights with a bunch and then like teams up with to fight the frightful four. Like what what do you think it was about Namor that Denny went for? You know, when I think of Spider-Man, I just think of Namor, I get, you know, like, and, and, the, and the battles for Atlantis that Spider-Man always, I mean, it, it makes no sense, Dan. I mean, first of all, Namor, like, you know, obviously at this time was kind of more associated with Fantastic Four. So maybe it was just like, oh, let's, let's, maybe Namor wasn't doing much in that book at the time. So it's like, oh, let's get him, let's get him on Spidey. But like, it's, it's just so out of nowhere. Like, it, it doesn't feel... It, it, there's there's nothing Spider-Man about it. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that we really get out of like Namor's introduction is when he's fighting the Fantastic Four. And I regret not having a picture of this to show, or maybe I don't regret it is the famous, and I'm going to say it on this show, which it, it has to be said is the, the fun with people's buttholes scene, I guess like uh, with Sandman where Sandman is attacking Spider-Man in a way that I find rather unorthodox. Mark, is that a decent description of this panel? I I mean, you know, if you like, you know, a fist of sand going up your posterior, I mean, you know, that that's 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 about sums it up. (laughs) I mean, I, I like Namor as a character. I just think like in terms of power set, he should be vastly more powerful than Spider-Man. I don't know how you rank power things, but it's just a weird character to bring into this book. But he's here and he's standing next to Spider-Man when Spider-Man's getting punched in the butt with sand. What other interesting characters do we have, Dan? 
Well, I had to bring this one up. This is Wino Charlie. Wino Charlie is a character that Denny O'Neill spends like three issues on. He's just a drunk guy that wanders around New York. And you're wondering, like, where is this going? Why is there this guy named Wino Charlie? Why do we need to know so much detail about Wino Charlie? And the reason is because in one issue, he nearly gets burned to death by the wizard on top of Peter Parker's apartment and Spider-Man has to save him. And that's it. We never hear from him again. We just know that Spider-Man saves him. Now that is worthwhile storytelling, just economy of pages spending three issues on why no Charlie just for him to kind of be like ambiguously saved. But again, Dan, looking at that visual, you got the purple and the green again. I mean, like, could this be another alias of Norman Osborn? It's Kindred. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's kind of, I guess, the discussion of the contributions. I mean, let's now kind of refocus a little bit, talk about O'Neill's generally what his strengths are as a writer and kind of how they were applied to Spider-Man and whether those strengths actually worked for Spider-Man, right? I don't think that they work terribly well, but like, you know, you can see how he's kind of bringing his DC, I wouldn't say Batman approach to this thing. So like Mark, what, what stands out to you about Denny's writing? Well, like, okay. So when you look, Obviously, when we were talking earlier in the episode about like Green Lantern, Green Arrow and Batman, I mean, you know, one of the big things that O'Neill did a lot of and and he did this afterwards with Iron Man and Daredevil as well, where these darker tones and realism and, you know, and and street level, you know, like you kind of come, you always come back to like, you know, street level. And yes, Spider-Man is totally a street level character, but he's he's kind of not he's not street level the way. Daredevil kind of became street level. I mean, in the fact that I feel like he's still kind of the lighter hero. He he swings in daylight. He fights colorful casts of villains, you know, like, you know, yes, like those early Lee Dicko stories, they had street crime elements. But like, even though that it was very elevated and bright, you know, you had characters like the crime master and the enforcers with Fancy Dan and, and Montana. I mean, you know what I mean? These are not this is not like like gritty crime, you know, Joker's five way revenge kind of stuff or Kingpin as he was as he was kind of known in the Daredevil series with Frank Miller. I mean, this is, and I just feel like tonally, like these kinds of like gritty stories, you know, like being down at the docks and, and, you know, trying to sniff out some, some union, some labor crime. I mean, like that's not Spider-Man. That's never been Spider-Man. Like I, I, I don't feel those, those stories identify with who this character is. Right. The only two real colorful characters that we get that precede this run are like, but there's an issue with Craven where we return to like the natural history museum again. And there's dinosaur bones because of course, and, and Dr. Ock within the annual issue. And other than that, I can't really think of like classic Spider-Man rogues that make an appearance in this, in these stories. You're right. It's always like some ambiguous villain or like a criminal, whether it's like a guy on a rooftop with a gun. And I, I don't really think that's necessarily bad, but like, They're just not particularly memorable. I mean, least memorable, I think, to me is probably the fusion character, which, you know, so unmemorable. I don't think we've ever really seen that character return. There's got to be some B title that returns to him. But, you know, yeah, I I, I think it's it's like close to what Dicko was trying to do with the like the villains can be nobodies kind of thing. But it's almost too much of a nobody, like at least like the big man had a cool mask and the crime master had a cool mask. You know, these guys are just like, forget them, you know, like just a minute later. You know, I can't even name them off the top of my tongue. Yeah. And and, and kind of to that end, I mean, you know, another big thing that O'Neill is known for is this, is this idea of like villain psychology. I mean, obviously, this was best evidenced by that Joker story we were talking about early. I mean, like, you know, Joker was a was a villain. He truly got into the head of same with like Raja Ghoul. I mean, Raja Ghoul, you know, the way he's portrayed in the in the Nolan films. I mean, that's what O'Neill kind of set the, the, the standard for in terms of this, you know, this highly psychological villain for Batman. But the thing is, like, I mean, okay, we talked about Hydra Man's origin a bit in terms of like kind of like, oh, that's that's, you know, you kind of feel sympathetic because it's like, you know, it's not his fault that this happened to him. It's actually kind of the hero's fault that this all happened to him. But like we really don't get into 
a lot of deep villain psychology here in large part because the villains that he uses are pretty lackluster. I mean, you know, they're either kind of borrowed villains from other books that no one cares about, like Mesmero or Ramrod. I mean, you know, or, you know, the characters that he creates are like pale imitations like Hydro Man. I mean, or or just kind of out of left field, like fusion, like like that fusion is just a completely, like you said earlier, I mean, like this is a total wacky, random nobody that gets these powers and then, you know, it's all over by the issue's end. And I, I you know, it's, it's kind of hard to have memorable hero villain encounters when you don't have memorable villains. And, you know, Spider-Man literally has the best, rogues gallery in marvel so like the fact that o'neill outside of craven like you said just kind of refuses to use these guys is kind of you know i think the the his run suffers as a result i think fusion is probably the low point of this run if you were to ask me i mean it just kind of feels so perfunctory and you know it, it kind of just kind of really misses the mark of like how these stories are told. And maybe it was a quick turnaround because he, you know, had to pick up for Marv, but I mean, you read it and you're like, like, wow, what a step down from what we've been getting before. There's also like weird social consciousness stuff in, in this book. Like, you know, Stan would often do that in his books. Like, you know, the stuff with Robbie Robertson that we talked about where he would try to address like race issues and stuff, but they would generally make Peter out to be either a guy who's like seeking understanding or is ultimately good. But in here, like Peter is more often just like a jerk or someone you don't really like the, the, you know, the stuff with, you know, hydro man. The only reason that Peter is involved is because there's a union that's trying to like get better wages for themselves on the docks. And so Spider-Man steps in and is like, Hey, business owner, you don't need to give them more money. I'll do the job for you. And you're like, is that what a hero? Would do? <laughs> you know, it's very strange. And, uh, you know, then there's all the stuff with Deb too. Like, and, and I can't blame him for it because Bill Mantlo created it, but he went back into that well so often and never chose to delve, dive deeper into it. It was just like a way to punish this character. And it made you feel kind of icky when reading it. Even, t- you know, even going back to what I was saying earlier, like time and context, I mean, like, it's it's outright cruelty to to a female character and you're kind of like i mean you know maybe o'neill thought it was funny when he was doing it but yeah i mean like here's an opportunity to like actually maybe address certain issues in terms of mental health and 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 depression and and whatnot and just totally swinging a miss like he just makes it a punchline and you're kind of like okay i i you know i i guess I guess I can just laugh at it. I mean, we can laugh at it now because it's so bad, but I mean, it's it's also just bad. <laughs> yeah, all these plots too also like they seem they're so story focused. There's almost like there's very little Peter character or characterization in them. I I think he probably uses thought bu- bubbles the least of any of the Spider-Man writers so far. You know, now we don't get them at all, which I think is a real detriment. But like it's very uh, plot-oriented uh, and not particularly insular, which I think is what made Spider-Man stand out. And as a result, like very few of these stories actually have lasting ramifications. Like You'd get a one-issue, one-and-done, and no one would ever bring it up again. So, for example, like... There's one issue where Peter breaks into a prison for a bugle story and he gets like implicated in causing a prison break and is arrested, but he never clears his name and no one ever mentions it again. So like there he just has like a arrest record that no police officer has ever like followed up on. Yeah. And we've certainly had other like Spider-Man slash Peter goes to jail stories before that feel like they've had, you know, a little more impact than this one did. Like I, like, I, I totally forgot that this issue happened until I reread this run again, you know, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's got that insane cover, though. So who could forget that? Yeah, that's a Frank Miller cover, if memory serves. Like you said earlier, there's only one multi-park arc in the entire run with, like, the Frightful Four who aren't even Spider-Man's villains, you know? And it's like, okay, it's kind of a ho-hum story where people just get into a slugfest. Like you said, these are they're one and done stories, and like you know, we I referred to this earlier when I was talking about the the lonesome Pincus Ramrod story, but like so many of these stories are also just like here's a crazy scenario, and Spider Man has to solve it by the end of the issue. But like, if you're looking at it, are like are these actually Spider Man issues to be solved, or are these just like random like 
just problems. You know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Do, am, I, am I making sense here? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about mud thing in the past. Like we did a whole episode on the mud thing because we had a listener that requested it. I don't know what was wrong with that listener. They really wanted mud thing. And so we gave it to him. Mud thing being the combo of Sandman and Hydro Man, just like you do. But yeah, like you're right. There's a ton of filler in, in these issues of like, it's like a diehard, right? There, you know, the concept that like every diehard movie started its life as another movie yeah. <laughs> and it was ultimately so generic. They made it into a diehard, you know, and, and, and this feels like that, you know, we've talked about like the weird pacing on these books and how good the, the annuals are because of Frank Miller. But like every issue here is just some strange contrivance, you know, like the mud thing, for example, is just King Kong but with Spider-Man in it, like, you know, you, you, it's like uh, you could take any movie idea and just kind of like add Spider-Man to it. And that is an issue from the Danny O'Neill run. You know, that the marathon story we talked about earlier, like, it's just like, like, you know, you're going to get, you're getting calls at a phone booth and you got to solve this crime before it happens. And it's like, you know, like you would think you would think like, oh, it's it's New York City. It's going from borough to borough like this is a perfect time to kind of like get swinging Spider-Man. And it's not that at all. Like it doesn't capture the spirit of that at all. It's just so generically, you know, generic hero stuff. You know I mean, like it feels like a like a, t- a TV movie, a TV movie thriller that I'm just popping on at 11 o'clock at night sometime. All right. So, Mark, spitball me some I, some Denny O'Neill Spider-Man stories here. Get Just spitball me. Danny O'Neill, give, give me some stories here. You're Danny O'Neill right now. What what are you writing in Spider-Man? All right, all right, all right. Here we go, here we go. How about Spider-Man boards a bus and finds he needs to keep the bus going at 55 miles per hour or above or the, the vehicle blows up and kills everyone on board? What do you think? No, 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 no. Here's a better one. Spider-Man needs to captain a ragtag group of prisoners in a football game against the prison guards to get his freedom. What do you think about that one? Oh, that's 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 gold. That's gold. No, I got. I, <laughs> all right. Hear me out. Hear me out. This this is so simple yet so complex. I'm, I'm ready for it, Mark. I'm ready for it. Spider-Man. He is on a plane with snakes. There are snakes on Spider-Man's plane. End scene. What would you what What would you call that? I would call that Spider Man sits with snakes in a plane. <laughs> it's not. It's not quite catchy and simple enough. The amazing snakes on a plane. Uh, you got it. Sold. <laughs> all right. Uh, now that's a Denny O'Neill issue. <laughs> what? Give me another one, Mark. Give me another one. All right. All right. All right. Well, you know, to, to, <laughs> I feel like we, we, we kind of ruined this joke already. Spider-Man is in a high-rise building that gets taken hostage by a group of terrorists. For added challenge, he loses his shoes five pages in. Is he wearing shoes or is he wearing like socks just over his whole body? Uh, we don't know. Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> How about this, Mark? How about this one? This is, this is you know, you can't top this one. It's, a, it's about a cryptic terrorist who takes over New York City and he just holds holds them all hostage in a lethal game of Simon Says and refuses to speak to anyone but Spider-Man. So Spider-Man teams up with a street-savvy electrician electrician named Roxanne. And so Spider-Man has to dash around the city trying to stay one step ahead of the murderous puzzle, solving riddles along the way. And the villain ends up being, you know, the classic Spider-Man villain, Crossbones. Who would have thought, you know? How about that, Mark? How about that? Like, we'll call it... Simon says that's amazing Dan you know like when we were asked a few episodes ago about like what we would do with a Spider-Man run if we were ever the creator like I think we just did it right here man like this is this is gold what if the co-star of that movie is Nick Fury oh my goodness that's amazing I mean what if, wait wait what if what if we get Mandius to play the villain <laughs> Oh, perfect. 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 You, you, you got it. You got it. So, okay. We're having a little bit of fun here. Like Danny O'Neill, like we love you, man. We don't love your Spider-Man comics, but we love talking about your Spider-Man. This is like a thing that Mark, you and I have been doing for years. Final thoughts on the Danny O'Neill run. Let's get it all on the, on the, you know, on the field here. I mean, I feel, if you will. I feel like we changed our format of this show for four seasons ago, just so we can do this episode. I, I mean, that's, that's how much the Danny O'Neill run has an impact on me and how I talk about Spider-Man comics. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, this is, this is totally forgettable. I mean, like I, I, I do hesitate to call it the, the, the worst because like, I do feel like, 
there are periods of comics that will be coming later that are, you know, kind of bad, but in a way that actually have a lasting impact in their, in their badness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I've had negative ramifications on the character that have kind of like been hard to kind of put back in the box in a way. And this is this is just bad in a way that it's like utterly forgettable and like, you know, like you could you could do a binge on Spider-Man comics and skip all of these comics and maybe outside of the Madam Web issue, not miss a thing of relevance. And I think that's that's what the Denny O'Neill run is for the most part. I typically do skip it when I'm reading through Amazing Spider-Man as the number of times I've done it. And, you know, I actually used to skip the Marv Wolfman and I think doing these shows have, have kind of really restored my appreciation for the Marv Wolfman, but doing this for Denny O'Neill, like I'm just reminded, oh yeah, these are a real slog, you know, other than those annuals, <laughs> which, which bolsters my case. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's not the worst run of Spider-Man, but I think that's why our title of this episode is appropriate. You know, other than the joke we're making about lost years, this is truly the lost years. You can skip it. And Marvel seems to have, largely in their kind of printing and honoring of this run of Spider-Man. And I guess maybe Denny has too, because like I said, he just doesn't talk about it. So, and, and I don't know if he doesn't talk about it by choice or what, but you know, that's it. But now, now we have, we have firmly cataloged it Dan, in a way that probably no one else has ever cataloged it before. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, awesome. That was our discussion of the Denny O'Neill run. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you find the show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe this show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, it's a special podcast review of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 15, a stellar annual from Denny O'Neill. Denny O'Neill's run with artwork from Fan- with Otwick with artwork from Frank Miller. It's so good, it might actually count. We'll be recording it today after the live stream with our members on Patreon. So if you want to tune in live, you'll have to become a patron. And since new comic issues aren't coming out right now, not for a little while at least, why not take that $3.99 and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And when comic stores open back up again, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week it comes out. And if you contribute $10 or more a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Mark Marks, Max Fiamora, and Color and Inks. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, and we know this is a hard time for everybody, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We couldn't do this without your support. But alas, Dan, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. This was a lot of fun, Dan, but what are we going to be doing in our next episode? Yeah, Mark, we have a really exciting episode uh, coming up for you. In two weeks, we'll be back to discuss all of the bad guys or are they forgettable guys that made their first appearance or had a major status quo shift in the pages of Spider-Man comics during the late 70s and early 80s. Mark, what are we calling that episode? We're calling it the forgettable guys. Forget about it, all right? You know, we, we, we used to have the bad guys and now we have the forgettable guys. I love it. I love it, Mark. So that's going to be really exciting. We're going to talk about a lot of really lame bad guys. It's going to be really fun to poke fun of these guys like we love to do. I mean, they're swarm. Maybe he'll make an appearance. I don't know. What do you think, Mark? 
<laughs> the power of video. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great, awesome. So if you so if you missed out, be sure to check it out next time. And don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube and on Patreon. But Mark, until Hydro Man, Sandman, and Groot combine to form Topiary Man, I know I can rest on one constant, and that's our motto, Mark. I'm giving you the honors. With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next